As your real estate investing business grows, scaling effectively is one of the challenges you face. You want to spend your time focused on capital raising and building relationships, but a lack of processes can result in inefficiencies, errors, and difficulties in maintaining quality service. You want to be able to establish standardized workflows to ensure uniform quality of service and minimize the errors across all aspects of your business. In this episode, Jeff Barnes shares his Atlas method for helping business owners structure, systemize, and optimize their operations for both accelerated growth, which allows them to scale quickly. And what about the capital raising? Well, Jeff is also the CEO of Angel Investors Network, helping more entrepreneurs bring their products, services, and technology to the market as an advisor, mentor, coach, and venture fund manager. He shares some of his best insights and advice on what it takes to attract angel investors. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Real Estate Investor Content Marketing Podcast, where we help you build a private following of investors to finance your next real estate investment project. We're here to show you how to create content that people can't ignore and that turns your real estate investing business into a standout success. In each episode, we'll explore the secrets of content marketing for real estate investors. We'll chat with smart people, give you useful tips, and share success stories from others who've mastered content marketing in their real estate investing businesses. We'll cover topics like writing articles, blog posts, ebooks, video, podcasts, email, marketing, online education, social media, graphics and images, and of course, AI. If it's content, we'll have the experts and the insights you'll need. Whether you're learning to tell compelling stories, figuring out social media, or growing your real estate investing business through content, you're in the right place. And now, on with the show. Jeff, thank you for, for joining us today. Perhaps we can start off. At, I know you've kind of got a, a couple of ventures that you're involved in. Uh, one that I was particularly kind of interested in initially, and I think people that are listening, the angel investor type of things. What, what do you see as the positive things or the good things that an entrepreneur does that makes them successful that takes them from that idea to actually scaling a successful business? Yeah, that's sometimes a hard question to answer, but I will say that the number one thing that any investor is looking for and that every entrepreneur or business owner needs to get really good at is building a great team around them, you know, because ideas are a dime a dozen, as we say, right? Everybody can have a great idea. In fact, most people have great ideas every single day. But implementation right. of those ideas is really challenging. And as, as you're scaling a company, if you're the only person doing all the work, you're only going to go so far. And most people get burned out long before they ever see success if they don't know how to build a team. So one of the things that I look for, and it's, I guess, become a sixth sense for me, is how good somebody is at communicating with and leading teams. And that is much more interesting to me when I'm looking at a potential investment, strategic partnership, anything like that than the product, the service, the technology, because some people can be great at coming up with ideas, but if they can't get them off the ground, then it doesn't do us any good. And then if they can't find a way to get other people to help them get it off the ground, also a bit of a challenge. And are you talking about, even if they don't have a team in place, if it's an entrepreneur with an idea, maybe they've launched a product or a service, but you're looking for past experience or past incarnation they've been a good leader or yeah so let's dissect that a little bit if somebody comes to us and they've never started a business before they don't have any money they don't have a real business yet and it's just them and they just have an idea 
I generally pass on those people. And the reason why is because if you're coming to me with nothing but an idea, then essentially what you're saying is, hey, Jeff, hey, everybody in your network, can you guys just help me like make this thing a reality? Because I have the idea, but I have no idea what to do or where to go. And what we say is it's not about your resources. It's about how resourceful you are. So when you are early on, you may not have any resources, which means you need to be resourceful and you need to rally people mm -hmm. to your cause because most people come to us because I'm the CEO of Angel Investors Network. They come to us asking for us to invest. And yeah, they're not asking us for help necessarily with giving them ideas or coaching or training or even making introductions. They're looking for money right out of the gate. And that is the riskiest investment for anyone to make. The only thing that's riskier than that is committing all of your time to something and never being able to get the time back. You know, we can get money back, but we can't get our time back. And so when somebody comes that early on and they haven't proven that they are even able to go out there and rally a few people to their cause to help them and give up equity in their business or equity in their idea for a potential future win, that's a real challenge, right? Especially nowadays, there's so many different platforms out there and meetup groups and incubators and innovation hubs that people can go to where they can start to get that support, get that team and build that traction before they ever ask for money. But when somebody comes and asks for money right out of the gate, that's pretty much a non-starter for practically every angel investor that I know. Hmm. And what are the criteria that you do look for, you know, that are not, you suddenly say, okay, this looks like a good idea, or this looks like a, a business that you want to put some money in. What are the factors that you see that kind of stand out each time? And In a word, it's traction. And traction can come in a number of different ways. If you are a tech company and you are really big into, you know, building something that people, whether it's an app, whether it's a, a, a SaaS, then you're looking for user adoption. You're looking for growing user base. You may not be making any money yet, but I want to see that people are signing up and subscribing and that people like what they're doing. If it is, let's just say, for example, it's real estate and somebody is looking at doing a land development or a, a rehab on a big project. I want to see that you have done your legwork to figure out what is needed and show me all the financials and walk through step-by-step step what you've done to get there. Um, for land development, there's this thing called entitlement and, you know, what is it going to take it to go from, you know, land that's not very useful right now in the form it is to something that could be profitable. If we're talking about something that's very R&D heavy, we're going to want to see the research and the milestones that you achieved. Or if you're building prototypes, what do those prototypes look like? Or if you built, you know, an EP. Um, you know, those types of things are really important. And I'll, I'll give you a story that helps really facilitate and answer this. Um, right. Dropbox was one of those companies that is a company that everybody knows about now. Everybody knows about Dropbox and Dropbox just continues to grow and it's just a, a really great idea. However, back in the day when they created this idea, the idea was, hey, we can't send large e files through email. What do we have to do? We have to burn it to a CD. Then we have to take that CD to another place. We have to load it into a computer. And then uh, and if anybody doesn't know what a CD is, is listening to your podcast or watching this, <laughs> then you know that they're not going to get this reference. But at the time, it was really laborious to transfer anything that was large. And back then, everything was large, right? One picture would be several megabytes and you couldn't send it, let alone, you know, really big complex files. So everything had to be burned to disk and then transferred. Well, so what he did, um, and I, I apologize, I can't remember the founder's name off the top of my head, but he said, all right, I'm going to show you. And he did a little video. He said, look at my video. And I'm going to show you what happens with Dropbox. And he took a, a file. I said, look at this file. I can't send this file through email. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to transfer this file from here on my computer over to my Dropbox file over here. 
So I just move it over and he just shows it happening. Like everybody knows how to move a file, you know, th that technology existed. But he said, now I'm going to go over to this other computer and I'm going to show you what it looks like. Now, look, it automatically transferred. I didn't have to put it into, you know, the, the CD-ROM and do anything like that. It actually pulled it down and downloaded onto my computer. So how cool is that? Now, here's the thing. That was an edited video. Of course, he took it and put it on a CD and then moved it over and put it over to the other thing. It was, Seriously? <laughs> the technology didn't exist yet. And so what he had done is he showed a video of what it's going to do. And he put an opt-in on that landing page and he drove traffic and it was over a million subscribers. I think it was like in 48 hours, something like that, right? Wow. Because this person had been spending a lot of time leading up to that point, building his database, building his network, talking to people, learning what the pain points were. And then he just showed, hey, this is what we're trying to build. And so because he showed what they were looking to do, he was able to get that massive traction, not a single dollar in income, revenue, nothing yet. But that is what gave him the launching pad to go to investors and say, look how many people I have that want this. Let's go. That's what you need to do. You need to, and it, it, there's a lot of tactics around that, a lot of strategies. A big part of it is the story. A big part of that is finding your ideal customers and clients and then putting an offer in front of them that they cannot refuse. Like there's so much that goes into this, but what I'm looking for in a word and every investor is traction. Are you making progress day over day so that if I give you a little bit of money or time or attention, is that traction going to exponentially increase? Thus, I can get rewarded for that in the long run. That's right. what really what we're looking for. Okay. That makes total sense. Uh, just for the benefit of the people listening, a lot of people, uh, real estate investors listening, probably know the term or are very familiar with the term private investor. But what is an angel investor? What, how is that different? What do you, how do you typically define it? Great question. So you can be a private investor and invest in real estate with almost no money if you really want to, right? If you have $25,000 to your name, you can put that into real estate because it's not considered a security. Okay. Right. So in the terms of the Security Exchange Commission's, you know, Securities Act of 1933, 1934, and the Investment Act, anything that is a security requires to either be registered or if it's not registered, it's limited to a certain number of people. So angel investing is private deals. They're not listed on any public exchange anywhere. Now, unless, I mean, now you might have crowdfunding exchange, which is a little bit different. And so as a result, Reg D 506, A, B, C, D, all the different exemptions out there that exist, the 406 alpha regulation is what defines who can invest in those types of deals. So predominantly it's accredited investors. Right. Now that's, in it, I'm assuming most people are listening to know what an accredited investor is, but as of right now in the United States, it's million dollars or more net worth, excluding your personal residence. $200,000 per year for the last two years in income as an individual or 300K for a couple, right? And with an expectation that's going to continue, right? Can't be a fluke. You made a couple hundred grand and now, you know, you, you go back down and you lose your job, right? So <clears throat> that's the basic definition. Now, does that mean that other people can't be angel investors? No, of course not. Because there are rules and there are exemptions to allow people to invest money, even if they're not accredited. So what really makes an angel investor is somebody who comes in at a very early stage in the company. And they are going to provide, again, those resources, the money, generally the capital to get us to the next stage. So where Angel came from is back in the 1800s, you know, on, on in New York City, Broadway was getting big and the plays were the most popular thing to do for, for the upper echelon, for the elite. And mm -hmm. playwrights were generally very broke people. They didn't know anything about money. They didn't know anything about business, but they right. knew how to write a great play. And so what they would generally do is they'd go and they'd look for these rich people that wanted to see better plays and better productions and more entertainment. And they'd go to them, they'd ask them for the money to help 
build the stage, build the set, build the everything. And that's where the original term that we know of right now, anyway, I think it might've gone back further, but I don't really know. That's the first time we've ever heard somebody use the term angel investor. You are my angel. You came in and saved me and made this thing happen. And now we have Broadway as we know it today. That's where the original uh, came in, but it became very popular it really in the dot-com era when people could go and invest money in early, early stage companies, even companies that were napkin stage, pre-revenue, didn't have any money yet. They put the money in, they get equity, stock options, something like that for a long-term return. Okay. And this is very different from venture capital. Correct. Because angels are in there, as you said, that very early stage, maybe even concept stage versus venture capital. I'm kind of assuming. Yes and no. So, okay. so when you are a venture capital firm, you can still go and be at the, what we call the, the seed round, right? Where you're first capital in the door. Right. And the benefit of that is that you generally get a lot more bang for your buck. You can invest, let's just say at a seed round, a company says we're worth $5 million. Well, if somebody were to put in $500,000, they automatically get 10% of that company. First, you go to a series A round. Now the company says we're worth $50 million. Well, if you put $500,000 in that point, you only get what? 1%, right? right? So as a result, the economics change. So a venture capital firm is also very clearly defined by the Securities and Exchange Commission and other FINRA organizations and things like that, where what they are allowed to invest in and put their money into is very limited in scope. They are required to put, I think it's 80%, and I could be wrong on that, but I believe it's about 80% of their money has to go into private equity types of deals, private companies that are going to be scaling up. And the reason that's important is the IRS gives exemptions for this. Like there's all sorts of different loopholes around how the money works and why somebody would invest in a VC fund um, versus doing a direct investment to a company. There's a lot less risk, I would say, for an individual who's putting money into a VC fund because you're buying the expertise of the VC and their network, and they're going to be doing a lot of deals versus somebody putting their own money into one company, right? Gotcha. So that's the way you can spread your risk around. But venture capital companies range in size from maybe just a few million bucks to billions and billions of dollars, right? You know, the Andreessen Horowitzes of the world, the Sequoias that, that have invested in all these companies and made massive fortunes. But VC funds can actually have angel arms of their company and they can say we do early stage funds, right? But a lot of VCs are really looking at series A and beyond. And we've even seen as much as series E, which A, B, C, D, E, that's five rounds right. of raising capital. And the biggest one that I've seen recently, I should say, and there's a lesson that goes with this is Thrasio. Thrasio raised not from, not just from VC, but also from private equity funds and hedge funds. They raised $3 billion in private capital. Now yeah. that so sounds great. Within a couple of years, they file for bankruptcy though. So yeah, people might wonder how in the world does that happen? There's a lot of reasons for it. So sometimes we say raising too much capital can be just as bad as not having any capital. Why do you say that? The... Well, when you are raising a lot of capital, there is a lot of pressure on you to go out there and perform. So if you're a real estate investor, for example, and mm -hmm. let's just say you have a, a million dollar property, a multifamily property, that's going to be a fix and flip and reposition and you got to go sell it. Well, if somebody loans you all a million dollars. You know, whether that's 10% of their portfolio or 50% of their portfolio, they're going to want to see that money back at some point, right? So they're going to be looking at you as, you know, the, the person who took the money as their fiduciary to go fix this situation you're in and make more money to pay them back. Well, that puts a lot of pressure. The more money you put on into somebody, the more pressure you are allowed to apply. So they might take a board seat and they might say, you need to start performing to get me my money back. 
And people notoriously make bad decisions when there's a lot of pressure in a short timeline. And as a result, they might not make the best decisions. They might be, you know, they raise the money with rose colored glasses and then reality hits, you know, the economy can go bad. People can overhire. They can overspend on things. Like when you are just flush with cash, if you are not a good money manager, you might overspend on stuff you don't need. So the real estate investor might go and spend all this extra cash that they think they have on really nice fixtures and flooring and you know, paint jobs and all this sort of stuff, only to find out that they then can't turn around and sell it for what they want because it's in the wrong part of town. So there's a lot of reasons why having too much capital can be bad. But again, that just comes down to who are you investing? You're looking at the team as well, not just the, the individual product. Yeah, because my thought as well was too much money, perhaps complacency sets in and you think, ah, well, okay, I can do that and I can do that. And then all of a sudden the nose to the grindstone and they've got to produce. So, yeah. Complacency absolutely can be an issue. And so a really good example of that is when a founder takes in a bunch of money and they've never had money before, then they think, oh, well, I'm just going to hire a whole bunch of people, let those people run it. And I'm going to take some time off because I've been you know, busting my butt for the last several years doing this. I'm just going to take, well, you can't take your foot off the gas once the money comes in. That's when it's time to accelerate, but you got to do it in a smart way. So hitting that hockey stick growth is what every entrepreneur dreams of, but that comes with hidden costs. Like for example, we've had companies that have done a great job of raising capital only to start scaling up and actually start making money, but completely forget about the fact that they have to pay taxes. And when you do that, you know, the government is one of those, you know, those three letter agencies out there are not very forgiving. And so all of a sudden, if you don't have payroll taxes taken care of or income taxes taken care of, there's big penalties, big fines, and those are costs that maybe people weren't accounting for because they didn't have the right team. So right. it's things like that we try and help them with along the way. Right. Mm. And, and you also have a lot of focus coming from your background, military background and, and the principles in military around processes and systems. Am I right in thinking that? And how Absolutely. How that you look for in a company or is that something that you kind of perhaps get more involved in? Both. Um, actually, it depends on the, the, the company. Yeah, so I actually wrote a book on that, All Hands on Deck. It was about how U.S. Navy submariners structure, systemize, and optimize for success. And you cannot scale a business without that. You cannot scale a business without proper systems, proper structure, proper processes, um, a good team, good training, all of that. That's all very important. And a lot of entrepreneurs hate that. They absolutely hate it. I'm one of those guys that, I can do it really well if that's the only thing I need to do, but I've gotten to a point in my career that I don't like doing that anymore. I don't like sitting down there and creating the training manuals and documenting the processes and procedures. I, I find other people to do that for me now, but if you don't have that, you don't have an asset, right? You actually do not have a company because what a lot of entrepreneurs want to do is they want to be visionary and they are the ready, fire, aim kind of people. A lot of them are ready, fire, somebody else aim eventually, please. <laughs> right. <clears throat> and so what happens with a, a startup that's growing is that the visionary founder needs to have somebody else. I love Gina Wickman's term. That's an integrator that talks about, okay, you have all these ideas. That's great. Let's prioritize. Let's figure out which ones we can actually get done in this quarter and this year. And then let's put those there and then let's make sure we make a plan around that. Okay. So that's important for a startup. Now I said, the other side is we, we know a lot of startups don't have that going into right. raising capital. They just don't have that because they don't have a big enough team yet. The team is small enough to where they all know what they're doing. They're all just doing everything together, but then you have to start formalizing that when we actually do business acquisitions as well. And so when we acquire a business, we're looking for that inside of the business we acquire. Does it have the right structure? Does it have the right systems in place? 
you know, we're actually undergoing an acquisition right now. And we're looking at this company, we're saying, okay, everything looks great about this on the operation side, but your sales and marketing is not so great. So as a result, that's going to devalue you a little bit in our mind, you know, whether they choose to take the offer or not is up to them. But anybody who knows anything about acquiring a business or running a business, you know that you need to have systems and processes in place for a number of different things. And if those are not in place, then the value of the business actually goes down. So for companies that are looking to exit, it's imperative that they look at this as early on as they possibly can to figure out what systems, what processes, what procedures do I need to have in place and to remove them from the equation altogether. Right. And that's when you have an actual business. That's when you have an asset. If you don't have an asset, if you don't have an actual business that runs without you, you don't have brand equity, you don't have the ability to sell, to, to exit, to make money on the long, on the, the back end of it. Gotcha. And, and tell me more about, well, tell us more about the marketing systems, because I know that's an area that you're focused on. Uh, yeah. You mentioned you, you've got an event coming up, which uh, by all means mentioned that too, uh, but tell yeah, us absolutely. a little bit more about it. Yeah, I appreciate that. So our events are building wealth with businesses. And we, me, I really believe that the best way to build wealth is by owning a business. Now, real estate entrepreneurs, if they build it as a business, it's another one of those examples, right? So we have uh, clients that are fund managers now and have hundreds of millions of dollars of assets under management because they built it as a business, right? Not just a onesie twosie, go do this thing and make a little bit of money along the way. And so when we're looking at any of these businesses and we're talking about scaling, what's the number one thing that most companies need more of? Well, it's sales, right? Well, how do you get more sales? Well, you have to have more uh, sales conversations. And how do you get more sales conversations? Well, you have to have more leads in the pipeline. And how do you get more leads? Well, you have to get more uh, people opting in. And how do you get more of those? Well, you have to have more traffic. So we actually back in, so we have what we call the Atlas method. Um, the Atlas method talk, talks about awareness. So a lot of people have heard the story about the, the build a better mousetrap and the world will be a path to your door. The only way that's true is if the world knows about your better mousetrap. And that's awareness. So you have to have a system for generating awareness. This is communications, it's public relations, it's social media, it's writing blogs, it's doing emails, it's speaking engagements, it's going to show anything you can do to get out there and be seen. Gone are the days where you can hang a shingle out front of your door, people walk by and see you and they come in because you're the only game in town. Like that doesn't exist anymore. And so you need to get that awareness. Well, the next thing from awareness is you need to generate traffic. Right. It's great that people see the billboard, but are they doing anything with that? It's great that people see the YouTube videos, but are they doing anything with that? So traffic is the next step. Traffic is, you know, getting that person that's on the sidewalk to walk into the restaurant. Right. That's great. Now we've got the next step. Okay. We've, we're getting warmer. This person is a little bit more engaged, more likely to become a customer. But if they turn around and walk out, eh, no good. So the next thing is leads. We need to turn that person that's from a prospect, a cold prospect, who might know a little bit about us into a warm lead. And we do that by capturing their contact information. And there's so many ways we can do that now, because, you know, you think about any substantial purchase that's not an impulse buy, people think about it a lot. Google says mm -hmm. that it takes upwards of 500 times for a person to think about a thing, a product, a problem, or a solution before they take action on that. 500. 500. Right. Gosh, it used to be seven. <laughs> Set, it would be seven interaction touch points between right. a company and an individual. But right. you have to think about what got you to that point, right? Buying a car, right. for example. If somebody right. wants to buy a car, they're thinking about that for a long time before they even start narrowing down their, their criteria. And so if you are not showing up in any of those opportunities along the way, along that customer journey, then you're missing out. Mm -hmm. So 
we need to capture their information so we can continue to follow up with them because people, we all want to believe that somebody's going to come into the store, buy our thing from us today, and then come back in the store later on. That's not the way it works anymore. Right. There's too many options. I, I don't care if it's, you know, you are the only retail game in town. If somebody walks in and they see your stuff, guess what they're doing? They're going on Google shopping. They're going on Facebook shopping. They're going on Amazon. They're looking, they're price shopping you, even if you are the only game in town because they can't. So we need to think about that. So we need to follow up with them using leads. Then we need to get them to take action. We need them to then say, okay, I am interested in adding this into my shopping cart. I am interested in having that conversation with you and learning more about what it is you do and getting on the phone. We need that person to take a test drive, right? So again, they can walk into the auto shop or the, the dealership. They can, you can get their contact information, but if they don't take the test drive, auto dealers know they're not going to buy the car. But as soon as they can get somebody in to take a test drive, 80% likelihood they're going to close. And the next step is sales. So awareness, okay. traffic, leads, action, and sales. And then after the sale process is continuous follow-up. You got to keep engaging those people if you want to get them to come back. So that's kind of the nuts and bolts or the, the big picture view, I would say, of, of generating more marketing and sales. And is that is that the process you take people through in your workshop? You mentioned you got one coming up in Texas, I think in February. Correct. Yeah. In February 27th in Dallas, we're going to be there. And then we do these every quarter. We travel around the country to different areas so that people can see this. So we do two days of marketing systems and automation. And that's the high level, right? We always start with that. Okay, this is what you need, you know, and here's, let's talk about how we actually implement this. And so I'm a really big proponent on systems, of course, you know, we've talked about that, but mm -hmm. I'm a, a really big proponent of automation because nowadays you can get so much more work done with so many fewer people and the technology and the software and the tools cost a lot less than constantly hiring more people. You know, even when we talk about manufacturing facilities, that's how manufacturing got to be so big. And everybody's been talking about, oh, we'd love to bring all the manufacturing back to build the jobs. You're not going to build jobs by bringing manufacturing back, right? What are you going to do? You're going to build robots. You're going to build software. You're going to build things like that because, and the technology that's out there for manufacturing alone is just absolutely amazing. But manufacturing is the first place that people really started to see systems, tools, and automation became really big. Well, now everybody can use that, right? Through the power of AI, through the power of internet, uh, mobile apps, everything. It's just changed the game dramatically. It, it, it's funny. I, I saw a presentation towards the end of last year from a, a person that sells robotics into large organizations. And he used the term lights off manufacturing plants. So they now have, and I think Amazon even has it in their warehouses. It's Absolutely. literally the lights could be off. The robots pick everything, do the orders. You don't need anybody in there. It's yeah. Just amazing. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. I think there's a video out there that you can watch that shows the, the robots in Amazon. So you mentioned AI, and I don't think we can have a conversation nowadays without talking about AI. Where do you see AI fitting in? How are you seeing AI or how are you using AI? And how do you recommend entrepreneurs kind of approach it? Because I think everybody's thinking this is the golden goose, but I'm sure you're going to tell me that there's some caveats to that. Well, AI should be looked at like everything else that you use in your business as a tool, right? It is a tool and it has, it's a very multifaceted tool, but it is still a tool until the point that the AI is able to look at all aspects of all things and tell you what to do, you're still in charge, right? <laughs> so really rue the day that, you know, Skynet comes online and the AI and the robots take over, right? Like, you know, hopefully that never happens. But, you know, that being said, all, 
go back to when I was in corporate America and I was working for a really big insurance company. We had, you know, the biggest clients in the world, any company like Lay's Potato Chips. I'll give you an example. Anybody ever wonder how those Lay's Potato Chips, one, they taste amazing. They're so addicting. Everybody seems to love them, even though you have a love-hate relationship. I know I do. I'm like, I don't want to eat that. I know it's terrible for me, but man, so good. Then you look in the bag, you're like, how does every single potato chip look perfect except for like the little crumbs on the bottom that got crumpled? Well, going back to AI, this was one of the earlier uses I had seen of it, where on these conveyor belts that are running through at a really rapid pace, they are, you know, they're chopping the tomato, the potatoes, they're, you know, frying them, they're getting in on there and then they're drying them and they're going through this process and it's rapid. I mean, like really fast. Well, on these conveyor belts, they have little air jets and they have these little sensors and these sensors are looking at every single chip that comes through on this conveyor belt. And if there's an imperfection, wow. it, that air jet will blast. And I'm talking like milliseconds, right? And it's blasting them off this conveyor belt so that you don't get the bad chips in the bags, right? McDonald's with J.R. Simplot, they were doing similar things with their potatoes and making sure everything looked great. And so those are examples of machine learning algorithms. And then AI is, of course, being added into all of that. But then when you talk about the, the entrepreneur, like let's just talk about a solopreneur for, for right now and somebody that's really trying to figure out how do I take my company from zero to a million, right? from zero to one, as uh, I think it was Peter Diamandis talked about, but how do I get it started? And AI can be instrumental in that. If you know what you want to do down the road, then if you can start programming, even chat GPT, which now allows you to program your own GPTs, and we use software, we develop software that goes along with that, where you can say, hey, here's the output that I'm looking for. Here's all the different things that I'm going to need to do. I need you to ask me questions so that I, so you can help me develop this. And I'm talking things like a code base. So you can actually write software code in a number of different languages right now to mathematics, to formulations, to letters of intent and legal documents, to business plans, to, you know, uh, marketing systems. So people can become copywriters right now and content writers and on and on. So what you need to do when you're thinking about AI is think about what's the biggest challenge I'm facing right now, right? So. A lot of people, it might be generating more leads and getting more booked appointments. Well, guess what? There's AI tools that can be conversational AI, so they can have a lot of those conversations. And then you only get the hot leads once they've communicated, whether it's by text message, email, Facebook message, or whatever, right? So there's so many different ways it can be used, but again, it's just a tool. And if people think of it as the savior of their business, they're wrong. But what can a tool do for you that otherwise people would have to do? And that's the way you want to look at AI. Right. Wonderful. What's the best way for people to kind of initially approach somebody like yourself when it comes to, if you're thinking, if somebody's thinking, yeah, I, I need investment, I think I'm ready. Great question. So the, that's the exact person that we tailor everything to is the person who thinks they need investment and thinks they're ready. So the first step is angelinvestorsnetwork.com. We have a quiz right there on our homepage that says, hey, if you are an entrepreneur, click here and, you know, see if you're ready. And it's a quiz that will walk you through the steps of, you know, are you ready to raise capital? Yes, no, maybe. If you are, great. Here's what you need to do next. If you're not, here's what you need to do next and so on. So that's the first place that I would suggest people start. And then we put out content and blogs and articles uh, regularly on our, our website. And uh, we have our own podcast as well called Angels, Exits, and Acquisitions so that people can get a little bit more information about that journey from both ends of the spectrum, whether it's a startup to exiting or the VC who's investing in taking something to a unicorn. Okay, wonderful. We'll make sure that is all in the show notes. There's a, another good example of automation. You're using that quiz 
ahead of time for people to either put their hand up or potentially not be, but you're still going to help them in some way, I guess. So exactly. Excellent. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you for sharing your insights today and have yourself a brandtastic day. I appreciate it, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. I hope that gave you some ideas on both scaling and approaching larger or more structured investors. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate it if you took the time to rate it, review it on wherever you're listening. And if you have a moment and you think somebody else would benefit from this, please share the episode with them. Thanks and have a brandtastic day. <laughs>